Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We have the bond markets closed today. Equity markets are open. That means uh, we are here at Bloomberg. And that means Kate El Hillo is also there, Global Chief Investment Officer for Russell Investments. And Kate, I want to thanks so much for joining us here on this quasi day on, day off for the markets. I want to get your thoughts about ESG investing. That's a part of the investment process that's getting a lot more traction, it seems, on a yearly basis. How do you guys at Russell incorporate ESG into your investing framework? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. It is um, an increasing focus of clients and just with our approach, which is to customize for a particular client kind of principles and values, which is unique to ESG in lots of ways. Um, we are working on both getting in the data and, and processes set up to be able to you know, make some of those new investment decisions, but probably more importantly is really developing the way that we're accessing the market and uh, really targeting particular types of emphasis that clients are looking for. So just uh, to put some a finer point on that, um, our platform is a bit unique because it's open architecture. So we work with a lot of external managers globally. And so we have the benefit of really understanding how different investors are trying to tackle this investment objective. And you know, some of them are integrating it into their investment process. Others are leaning more in to make sure that all of their investments have a direct link to impacting a particular outcome, whether that's around the environment, um, your social objectives, or governance. And so with that, you can really you know, think through the, the best ways to you know, invest for particular types of objectives, um, depending on how much a client might want to dial up or down that particular outcome. Are clients leaning into ESG in order to provoke change, or are they hoping that returns will, will come? Yeah, it's a bit of both, and, and some are, are doing it because of regulatory requirements to in, ensure that their assets are aligning with um, particular requirements, maybe particularly around climate, and we're seeing that in certain regions, particularly Europe, be more of a focus. Yeah, I think that the direct linkage in the short term in terms of financial impact is a bit harder to prove out, um, but, you know, just because the data is not there and we haven't fully seen you know, the shift of the impact of regulatory and policy changes in spending will start to have in you know, just using environment as we look to shift to a more greener energy source. And so I, I believe that most clients are realistic in you know, understanding that there's um, you know, this dual mandate that exists between your know, financial outcomes and then the ESG objectives they're trying to meet and trying to get that balance right. And so making sure that you're you know, being thoughtful about how much risk you're allocating to some of these strategies relative to being able to achieve your overall goals is still a balance that I think everyone's trying to get right. But it's a bit of both. Give us a sense of just returns. If I'm going to really embrace ESG investing, do I make any investment return, you know, give, give ups? I mean, is it, a, is it a either or? Or how are the returns been for ESG investors generally? Yeah, well, if you look at just the past you know, five years, and this is you know, partially driven by how some sectors have done, you know, ESG strategies have done well, um, where 
energy, just to use that as an example, has been more challenged. It, you know, it's interesting as we head into this period and we think about some of the energy um, challenges that we're, we're going through right now, like what that will mean for particular companies where demand, um, you know, which was tailing off in capital allocation, it was tailing off for some of the fossil fuel companies and, and let's say the old economy, you know, start to um, maybe get a little bit more focused. But, you know, and to, sit, to put a number on, you know, the drag, um, it's, it's really difficult to do. So we try to do it more in risk space where we think about kind of how much risk you're taking by either excluding certain parts of the market or leaning into them. Um, you know, because maybe a, a way to put it, too, is that a lot of the ESG-oriented sectors tend to be more value-oriented companies, at least as they're defined right now. And so you can end up um, designing a portfolio that's ESG-focused that might be quite underweight in certain sectors. And so you can start to put numbers around that. And there's ways to compensate for it. But I'd say that the way right now that we're trying to deal with it is more through your thoughtful risk allocation, risk budgeting, just to make sure that that, um, that risk doesn't get too high um, in the portfolio relative to, let's just say, a market cap weighted approach. What, what do you see as the biggest winner among the three letters? I mean, most people probably think of the environment first when talking ESG investment, you know, green investments, battery manufacturers, electric cars etc. But um, there's also the social and, um, well, the social issue, I guess we talk about more as well, but the governmental issue we, we never talk about, right? Well, I would say governance, which is what the G... Um, you know, Sorry, governance, right. For. Yeah, it is about like just, um, you know, good corporate governance and boards and how they're interacting yeah, and, and you know, whether it's compensation-related items or it relates to you know, you know, labor laws and things like that. And so that always has been quite you know, integrated into you know, equity you know, research and, and how people are kind of valuing kind of different companies. And so maybe that is why, because there's probably more data around that um, and more kind of process around that. The but there's like dual, cl- dual shareholder classes. People don't like that, right? Chairman and CEO being one and the same. That's not yeah. okay, is it? I mean, are these the things that we're talking about? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's yeah. where um, engaging through proxy voting, for example, is a great mm-hmm. way to influence that. And you, know, you, you would have seen it with some of the oil companies, Exxon in particular, you know, where you had a very small kind of investor actually change the board composition. Uh, and so that, that often gets handled through proxy voting. And there's a pretty well-established and growing investment process to try to tackle that. The E and the S part are a bit newer. Uh, and that's where um, there's probably more work that needs to be done. All right, Kate, thanks very much. Kate El Hillo talking to us about ESG investing. This is Bloomberg. Let's get uh, back to um, the economy. I think Greg was also talking about the payroll disappointment on Friday. I was shocked to see this happen again. Marcus Schomer joins us. He's chief economist at Pine Bridge Investments uh, out of New York. Marcus, we have seen yet another disappointment on uh, jobs. We've seen Goldman Sachs cutting, albeit only by a little bit, their growth expectations. And we've seen central banks at least some central bankers start to freak out a little bit, maybe freak out is too strong a term, about inflation. But are you worried at all about stagflation here? Well, not really. I, I, I think that's taking it too far, too fast, right? I mean, we obviously have an inflation problem, but, you know, stagflation would be an economy 
where growth is slowing, you know, almost towards zero, that is stagflation. And I, I don't think that's the economy we're in. And it's, it's usually also describes an economy that has a demand problem, not a supply problem. It's very different in a very different environment when growth slows because of supply issues, when everybody's standing there with their wallets wanting to spend but can't spend. That's a very different start of economy as opposed to one, you know, the last time we talked about stagflation in the previous business cycle when basically people didn't want to open their wallets and we needed more demand stimulus. That's not really the world we're living in right now. So I think stagflation is is an overblown, overused term right now. I don't use it. So. Marcus, how do you feel about the economic outlook here? I mean, again, as, you know, as Matt was, we were talking about it, you know, on Friday, obviously the jobs report. I mean, you have to get a stronger job market to get this economy, uh, presumably to con- get some legs to it in terms of recovery. We have the Delta variant, uh, some mixed messages on the pandemic from a global perspective. We've got supply chain issues. How do you put that all in the pot into your model, if you will, and kind of come out with a, a, a concise economic outlook? Oh, it's, it's, it's very complicated because there's so many things going on that we typically, as economists or as forecasters, don't really view within our models, right? Uh, there's stuff going on that's sort of exogenous to the way we typically look at the economy or an economic outlook. So it's really, really complicated. But sort of very broadly, uh, you know, we're, we're still in a world where we're coming down from the, the peak recovery pace, right? We, we, rolled it, we rolled over in the summer. Everything is now basically slowing down. But I think that slowdown will take a while into 2022 before we get to a point where the question becomes, are we slowing towards sort of the long-term growth potential or are we slowing below? And I, I get it. Markets look at changes and rate of changes. I get it. Slowdown is always a bad word, but if you're slowing down from six to five, that to me is a different world than slowing down, let's say, from two to one. As long as economic growth broadly is still above long-term averages, that's still a world in which output gaps close, unemployment rates fall, and that's a good environment for 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 any kind of asset class in the market that's exposed to growth. Uh, as opposed to a world where we slow below these long-term averages. And I, I don't think that's where we're in right now or where we're heading uh, in the next six months. That's something that we're going to talk about maybe to, uh, in, during the course of next year. That's a 2023 issue. But I don't think that's something that's plaguing the economy right now, notwithstanding so, the fact that the numbers could be volatile quarter by quarter, but mm. the, the trend is not that, that weak yet. Well, we've had um – a drop in consumer expectation indexes from the conference board and from the University of Michigan. Um, And we had a report out from Danny Blanchflower of Dartmouth and Alex Bryson of the uh, University College of London saying, you know, they think we're in a entering a recession now downward movements uh, this is a direct quote downward movements and consumer expectations in the last six months suggest the economy in the u.s is entering recession now it's an outlier uh opinion i think but we're going to talk to danny next what would you how would you counter that argument <laughs> i always love the people who want to be out there first calling for a recession i mean we're barely a year of the last one and the first people are already calling for a recession brilliant but because those are the people who get the headlines right it's classic so no we're not in a recession i mean a recession is a a, recession is a very different kind of environment from an economy that could conceivably see a negative 
quarter-over-quarter growth rate, if we suddenly have, for example, a sharp decline in inventories, a sharp upward turn, a sharp decline in, in the contribution from trade because we can't get anything out of our ports or our exports may collapse, and that may be negative for GDP growth. We could have a world where we have a negative uh, uh, one negative quarter of consumer spending, but you know savings rates are so high. People are sitting on a lot of money they want to spend. They cannot spend because of supply constraints. That's not a recession. So mm. I think it's ridiculous yep. for anybody to talk to start to talk about this right now. A supply a supply chain a supply constraint decline in GDP is a right. very very different animal than a, a demand constrained economy that goes into negative growth. Very right. different stuff. Very different animal. Very different. All right, Marcus, thank you so much for joining us. Marcus Schomer, Chief Economist for Prime Bridge Investments uh, based in New York City. Now let's talk about uh, what's going on in these markets and what we can expect with Ted Oakley. He's a managing partner at Oxbow Advisors. Um, it's interesting, Ted. On the one hand, I'm reading the words stagflation more and more. On the other hand, our buddy Neil Dutta over at Renaissance Macro says – the home building sector is on fire. Um, you know, gasoline is is up. Consumer discretionary is rising. Transports are gain, gaining. He says this isn't stagflation. This is an inflationary boom. What's happening? Well, I'm, I'm not certain what they're looking at on that because if you look at a lot of the uh, a lot of what I would consider that group, you know, if you look just I'm taking from the highs now. But if you look at home builders, or since this is since February, they're down about 16%. You know, consumer durables are down about 12. Machinery is down about 10%. A lot of that stuff's rolling over now. I know it still feels like it's really strong, and uh, and it and it ha- it is relative to maybe two years ago. But on a on a just rate of change basis, it's not as strong as it was. Ted, we got to you know. Our folks down in Washington, D.C., lots on their plate right now in terms of debt ceiling, fiscal stimulus, you know, spending bills, tax law changes. How do you kind of incorporate all of that Washington stuff into your outlook? Well, what, what, what we're looking, Chris, nobody knows. And I think the problem uh, people have today is they've, they've got all these things that come out and say, hey, uh, capital gains are going to be X and they're going to go back to September and no, maybe they'll go to October. People are really, really confused about that side. I think the biggest problem with all of that is that it affects private business. And private business has to look at everything that's going to come through that, uh, not only the taxes they'll have to pay on ordinary income, but what's going to happen on capital gains. And a lot of companies will probably elect not to sell. They might have sold the companies and, and reinvested or done something different. I think that's a problem you have, and I really do believe that uh, they probably have more of a consensus on the pro-business side than they realize they do, but they're letting a very, very small group of people uh, control what's going on there. And I think that's really causing people a lot of heartburn right now. So you put those uh, two things together, in a sense, market sentiment rolling over, and what I hear you saying is, um, you know, Washington doing the wrong thing for markets. How does the rest of the year? How does 2022 look to you? Well, I would say that the rest of the year probably is in you know decent shape. I I know this much. The S&P is losing. It's losing momentum. And so it's probably okay for the rest of the year. We always found that if you had these big numbers up through July or August, you know, up 18 or 20 percent, you usually rarely add on a 
lot to that. I've done studies on that. You don't add a lot onto that. However, I would see when you get into 22, I think you're going to uh, somewhere in 22, I think you're going to run into some trouble. And, and, and I see that because by that time, all of this stuff will have taken place. They have to live in the real world. Uh, if, we, if this inflation uh, we have now doesn't go away, then one of those quarters, either second or third quarter, probably really runs into some market weakness. So do you hedge against that now? Well, we have in that we, uh, number one, we don't have anything that's very inexpensive. And so, I mean, we would, if everything was on a buy side for us right now was in the place where we like the valuations, we'd be 100% invested. But we're 25% cash, 23% cash in stocks or so, wow. about in our high-income accounts and aggressive income account. That's one of our other strategies. We're about 30, 31. Um, it's not because we wouldn't use it. We're not trying to time the market. It's just that what we put on the valuation that we want to buy, the type of thing we want to own, does not fit right now. What is the type of thing that <clears throat> that you guys like to own typically? Well, there's two two things I would tell you. We have we only have we're very simple. We have three strategies: a real conservative income strategy, which is bulletproof, and we really never lose any money there. But you don't make a lot. Uh, but on the stock side, if you look at the stock side, uh, we're looking for companies that can grow at 15% year in and year out. There's not that many that have that kind of growth and they have low debt, a lot of cash. But you know, we we look at digital advertising, the cloud services, the payment side. You know, mm-hmm. Visa, Mastercard, PayPal, and the software side. Those can do that. They can even do that through tougher times. That's what we're looking for. On the on the aggressive income side, we we right now we own we're very large in energy, probably close to twenty twenty one percent, and we own uh, oil, natural gas. Everything we own there is paying a lot of cash flow. Uh, we we like the REITs. They've 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 come back a little bit in here because I I think it's just everything that's going on. Let's um, hang on, Ted. Let's not breathe. Let's not breeze over oil and natural gas. I mean, okay. What sure. we're seeing here is the almost the perfect storm. Um, certainly for natural gas. You know, I'm in Berlin. Uh, prices in Europe have just been off the hook. Everywhere else, mm-hmm. there's. They're they're on fire as well, and we see oil up over eighty dollars a barrel. How does this all um, how does this all work out? Well, you know, we said for some time, and we were saying this last year, really in the fall, that we thought oil this year would go over eighty dollars. I thought we were crazy then, uh, and we had a big position in oil and natural gas then, and still do. We've actually added to it in the early part of this year, but. We see natural gas. I'm not trying to be an alarmist or anything, but just from a supply-demand standpoint, it wouldn't surprise us for gas to go to 8 or $10 in MCF U.S., which would mean higher in Europe, obviously. They're much higher than we are. But uh, we'd see that on the natural gas side. I think it'll go higher than people expect it will, and people are using it. And we really we're not drilling it up as much as people think. You know, the rig count is still only half of what it was four years ago. So we're not pushing that button to try to get that supply back on. And it has a lot to do with this green energy push, but but the timing's not going to work between those two, and I think people don't understand that. All right, so, Ted, you're down in Texas, right? Austin or Corpus Christi? Austin. 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 Mm-hmm. How's the local economy down there? you got oil at $80, but generally speaking, how's the economy down there? economy is in Texas is, is, is generally really good. If you look at the, the what I call the four main spots, which are – 
uh, Dallas, Houston, San, uh, Austin, and San Antonio. Uh, they're all really good. They're, we have a lot of people moving here. Yep. We have um, a lot of tech businesses which are you know, are really growing. They're moving not only just to uh, Austin, but a lot to Dallas as well. And then you have so many companies that are moving here, not just from California, but other places that want to be in the middle of the country. So generally, our economy is good. You'll Don't forget Formula forward. One and MotoGP. Mark Marquez <laughs> won his seventh in a row last weekend. That was a pretty amazing race. Uh, hey, Ted, unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but I really appreciate you joining us. Um, great uh, to get your thoughts on these markets and uh, to get your take on what's going on with commodities as well. Ted Oakley uh, there joining us from Oxbow Advisors. Now let's get to the world of uh, crypto, but also um, commodities. James Roste is here, CIO and founding partner at Coast Capital. He can talk about the whole gamut. I want to ask first, though, about the moves um, behind Bitcoin and you know the rest of the crypto space. It's not all moving in the same direction. I see still a lot of red on my screen when I look at uh, crypto, and, and someone tweeted to me, you know, why isn't riot mimicking bitcoin um wh why aren't we see this rising tide lifting all boats james um you know a really interesting question i think that we could uh, um, speak uh, about it until we're in blue in the face and not really reach a conclusion uh, that's the fate of crypto i think i think um look here's the problem i think that um, um tethering things uh, uh, to Bitcoin and expecting one thing or another to become the next Bitcoin, I think will be correct um, because any given cryptocurrency that we look at has technical flaws and shortcomings, which means that following generations will be better, will offset those shortcomings. And in a weird way, and without getting into too much technical detail, the more we offset the security concerns uh, or the more we address the security concerns around certain crypto or for, for a given cryptocurrency, the less usable it might become. So there's there's almost like a uh, it, 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 it's very, very difficult to get any one cryptocurrency to become, you know, a monetary unit that's widely adoptable and widely usable, never mind the fact that governments around the world are never going to let that happen to begin with. So I very respectfully view the whole cryptocurrency phase as, uh, or, or cryptocurrency universe as being full of various iterations of Bitcoin, some of mm. which should be trading at a notable premium to Bitcoin on the, based on their technical merits, some of which less, but the whole thing is probably going to be worthless well, over time. I just, you know, uh, or, or much of it, I expect. Be, be, be before we get to time. everything else, though, um, James, let me ask you about Tether. We, we had a great cover story yeah. on this week's edition yep. of yeah. Bloomberg Business Week, and yeah. What concerns me is without um, uh, without enough um, of, of an idea of what's backing each Tether coin. You know, it's supposed to be yeah. $1. We thought it was cash. Then we heard it was cash equivalent. Now we hear it could also be loans to companies related to Tether. And I have to wonder if it's also commercial paper in Chinese developers. Like, that seems to be it the possibility that seems to have the makings of the house of cards, doesn't it? It is a house of cards. It doesn't have, your story was brilliant. And uh, I think somewhat courageous because these Bitcoin bros, you know, with, with lasers coming out of their eyes, like the dead walkers <laughs> out of Game of Thrones, 
you know, really don't like facts and don't like facts that contradict their enthusiasm. And I understand the idea of wanting to get rich quick and not doing a whole lot of work and on top of it feeling like you're part <laughs> of too. a movement, whatever that means, you know. But I think that the BS has to stop and where it stops and how I don't know. And to be candid, it's not going to be terribly interesting because I've seen this before. Just the arrogance associated with these cryptos I haven't really felt before. Tether was supposed to have $1 of currency for every Tether issue. That was the premise. And by the way, it was invented because you could not, as an American, come in and buy Bitcoin you know, directly. You had to buy something else because of, the, uh, uh, because of security concerns and because of uh, uh, money laundering concerns around, uh, around Bitcoin. So Tether was invented with that very specific assumption and statement. You know, $1 for every one Tether. And then lo and behold, a number of years later, there's not a dollar for every, for every Tether. There could be a lot less. And by the way, not a dollar a currency it could be as you say in in in, in loans to uh, you know chinese bitcoin farms it could be in you know chinese education companies listed on nasdaq you have no idea and the fact that the hopefully not evergreen right? <laughs> well <laughs> you know who knows there's probably worse but the fact what amazes me is how far the authorities have allowed all of this you know nonsense to go you know and and and, and how little oversight they've exerted so far i just I'm very concerned that globally speaking for securities, we're entering a period where the rule of law is not making itself felt and people are feeling emboldened to carry out, you know, uh, 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 things that, that would not have been allowed even 10 years ago. All right, James, let's move from crypto to crude oil, WTI crude oil, north of $81 a barrel. What's your call on what's happening here with crude well, look, I mean, I mean, I think that there is uh, um, um, there's a lot of uh, um, different forces at play and, and in any major market there always will be. But I do think that, um, you know, we basically had gone through a pretty important period of underinvestment. And I think that this past year exacerbated that period. And I think that now that we have, you know, uh, uh, increasing demand for oil, you know, coinciding with underinvestment, coinciding with, you know, shortage in, 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 in uh, uh, shipping containers, which I think does add to all of it, because if if things get stuck, you know, you still burn energy to maintain these ships, but it, it, you use a lot more. It becomes a more energy intensive business, at least short to medium term. And so I, I, I just think that, um, you know, we had a period a year and a half ago, as you might recall, where, you know, a, 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 you know, a barrel of oil had important negative valuation on some markets. We oh, might have a squeeze up that would be frightening. You know, uh, uh, and, and, and it's very it's not a sensible market in the short to medium term. Longer still, term, we have more than enough supply around the world to meet our demands. And certainly in North America with the non-conventional oil that we have, we should yeah. be in a really good place. I say it still gives me goosebumps to think of that day. James Raste, CIO and founding partner at Coast Capital. Thanks very much for your insight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.